the first season of the NFADB podcast, Pilot Project, constructed by the Volunteer Board of Directors of the National Family Association for Deafblind. This podcast will share the journeys and insights of families and educators and loved ones impacted by individuals with deafblindness. We hope you find what we share to be beneficial, helpful, and inspiring. If you like us, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. This allows NFADB to continue its partnership with iTunes. Please go to the NFADB website at nfadb.org and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening. This month I had the privilege of interviewing Claire Berg. She was part of the dream team that funded NFADB in 1994 and has served in different positions in and out of the board of directors throughout the years before becoming president in 2013. Clara has also recently retired from her family specialist position in the New York Deafblind Collaborative after serving almost three decades with the New York Deafblind State Projects. Clara is founder and board member of the New York Parent Association for Deafblind and her son Kenny has been a blessing and her best teacher to support and guide families and professionals nationally and internationally. Thank you for listening. This is my conversation with Clara Berg. Thank you for having me. Tell uh, our listeners a little bit about you. Oh, well, I don't know if you have five or six hours to listen to me because, you know, if I have to tell you a little bit about me, I have a lot to talk. But uh, <laughs> if I can summarize a little bit of the journey, um, I went through, uh, I can tell you that I'm originally from Uruguay, South America. My husband and I, we decided, I met my husband in New York, stayed in New York, and we um, decided to raise a family in New York. Uh, we have three children. Uh, the second one came a little bit ahead of the time that he was expected. He was only 25 weeks old in pregnancy and uh, when he was born he weighed less than two pounds to make the story short we went through a lots of ups and downs in the hospital we went through periods where we didn't think he was going to make it he spent eight months in the hospital to finally come out weighing only five pounds hydrocephalic uh, and we knew that he was going to be blind deaf and they had told us he was not going to survive his second birthday. That is the beginning of the story, per se. Right. Right. Uh, Kenny came home. We started right away with very intensive physical therapy. I did the outreach through Schools for the Blind to make sure that some services were available. And at that time, as a parent who comes from a completely different culture, I had no idea about the involvement that the parent had to have with the professionals. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I thought that I'm taking my child to school, they're going to teach him, they're going to train him, he's going to come home, and I am going to take care of making him happy, feed him, and give him a nice place where to to sleep yeah. which means at that time and for many years and it was I, I, I assume it was cultural uh-huh. school was where the kids would be educated home is a place where they are nurtured and loved uh-huh. 
I did not understand, and I wish I would have known then what I know now, which is communication with a child who is deafblind is number one key for the success in the rest of their lives. We did not start having the use of sign language with Kenny until he was about two years old. Yeah. And again, yeah. because we did not know uh, how to do it. So um, you, you get this news and uh, not only are you dealing with the emotions of the news, but then there's a scramble to get the knowledge and get the resources of what to do. So uh, for, for us, it was a, uh, it was a happy but very complicated time in our lives. Why? Because between Sheldon, our first son, and Kenny, there is only 10 months difference. And at one point when we thought Kenny was not going to make it, I got pregnant with Karen. Mm -hmm. And Karen was born 10 months after Kenny. So in 22 months, we had three children. Oh, goodness. Her <laughs> hands were full. Uh, so not only we had to deal with Kenny's deafblindness issues uh -huh. and the feeding at that time was very, extremely important, mm -hmm. but we had to deal with two other babies in the household. Yeah. So if you yes. talk about a very busy oh, household, yeah. that was, um, like I said, a very happy yes. time because the you kids were, were absolutely <laughs> beautiful, <laughs> but uh, it was very busy in communication, sign language, uh, it was completely out of the radar mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. sense that I was just busy keeping them busy and healthy and happy. The process on communication started when Kenny was three years old. He started to walk. We realized that, okay, this kid has survived his second birthday and he's going to make it because he is beautiful, mm -hmm. he's growing stronger, and he's curious. We decided then uh, to change schools. We went into a very wonderful program that unfortunately was only until he was five. Wow. The big trauma started when he was five trying to find a school for Kenny uh, to go. Mm -hmm. Living in New York City, where services are so complex and so wonderful, we still could not find a school that would serve our child. Wow. Whatever programs we, we went to visit, whatever programs Kenny was involved in, they did not accomplish um, a goal on education. Mm -hmm. I knew what I wanted for Kenny and um, going to different programs I I saw that it was not happening. Yeah. When Kenny was six years old finally he was accepted into Perkins School for the Blind which is like a dream school for children who are deafblind because uh, not only they do total communication but they do orientation and mobility and anything to do with ADL skills. It, it was wonderful, except that we lived in New York, Kenny lived in Boston, and having two siblings that were very young, it meant that every Friday afternoon I had to get on the car, <laughs> and we get in the car with the, with, the, with the children and spend the weekend in Boston. Mm -hmm. And that happened 
for about nine years. So it was a little bit uh, hectic. So you weighed that decision for him to go to Boston and, and move away from the family for, for his future because there wasn't schools? The fact that we couldn't find a school in New York was the, ter- but the, the major key for us to decide about Boston. Yeah. Again, with my mentality, my very old style thinking that came from my background, the school is going to teach him and I am going to provide love. Uh-huh. In my mind, Kenny was going to go to Perkins only for one year. Yeah. Come back home and be not cured, <laughs> but uh, be able to communicate with us. Or nobody explained to me that communication is a two-way um, deal, where if he's going to be communicating, uh-huh. somebody else has to be the receiver. And when I realized that is. Kenny was just about, I would say, five, six years old when I started learning sign language, but I kind of missed the boat because communication has to start a lot, a lot younger. Mm. And because I missed the boat, something that I will regret the rest of my life, uh, Kenny became self-abusive because he he wanted to be understood, the fact of being deafblind kind of, you know, we think of children who are typical children receiving all kind of incidental communication. And Kenny was so curious and the fact he could not receive that perspective of the world around him made him, provoked him to to hurt himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I see that, like that hindsight always brings in the, those feelings of regret, but in, in the moment, you know, your, your thought was, I'm doing exactly what I need to do for him, you, you know. Yeah. But I see a lot of parents struggle with that, and you know, what, do you, what do you say to them? Well, I say you have to kill the little fires in the moment that the little fires are with you. And what I mean by that is that being parents of children sometimes who have either medical issues or behavioral issues, you just try to solve the situation of the moment. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for a mother, for a parent, could be mother, father, um, to have to deal with raising children, taking care of a house, um, being part of a family life, either with a husband or uh, a companion, you know, it, how do you balance everything? And, and on top of that, how can you think about tomorrow when you have so many things on your plate today? Yeah, it's like how do you get your steps ahead, you know, when you're you have to stay in the moment then and and so like that yeah I see the the planning in that is it's it's a hard catch-up you know you're juggling a lot Mm -hmm. Um, when when Kenny went to Perkins actually it gave me a opportunity to 
realize actually the need, the, the very urgent need I had to learn about deaf blindness. Mm -hmm. I volunteered to work in a program that at that time was working with kids who, who were deafblind and who at that time, purely, I don't know if it was by accident or by luck, they also had the state deafblind grant. Uh, wow. the New York State Deafblind Grant. Uh -huh. So I worked as a volunteer for a long period of time until one day my husband told me, you know, if you're going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and when I went to my boss, she said, you know what, we can hire you and you can become the family specialist. And that was the <laughs> beginning of my career <laughs> as a family specialist. Um, that gave me the opportunity to work, I would say, at this time and after almost three decades with I I must have worked with thousands of parents mm -hmm. through this all these years I think we all parents either if you have a child who has special needs or who is a typical child you always wonder yourself what could have been done differently or better uh, we want the best for our children we just don't realize that at some times we are dealing with our reality of the moment and we are we cannot just project ourselves into the future. What do you believe are the most of the challenges uh, for for parents educationally? To start early. Start early. As soon as your child is diagnosed, uh, just start early. And when I mean start early, com communication being number one. When the children can communicate, when the children can express themselves, can, they can understand what you're telling them. It just opens up an array of possibilities mm -hmm. that it's completely close to them. So recruiting educators to buy into, hey, I, I've, I have a plan, um, we can make progress. Uh, what, what's important about those IEP meetings, do you believe? I'm a strong believer in partnerships, and I did not ask on services for Kenny at one time because I did not know what was available for Kenny. Mm -hmm. I could not do research 35 or 36 years ago because I wouldn't know even how to start. Yeah. And uh, here comes a professional telling me, Mrs. Berg, this and this and this would be appropriate for you. Uh, they know, it just I, talking about partnerships is that the professionals will complement the part on the parents that we parents not necessarily know. Mm -hmm. And we can do it together. Let the school do their part and we parents do our part. So with that education, then there's that partnership that's created, but as that, those educational years begin to end, there starts a, a transition of, oh my goodness, public education's ending. So what are those fears and how did you address those? I have to tell you, if a parent gets engaged in a partnership with a professional when the child is very young, um, I would think that in the life of a student, we have many different transitions because it's 
a lot of the emotional transitions that nobody thinks about mm -hmm. when your child turns three or four and the child either doesn't walk properly, communicate properly, or eats properly. Uh, it's that emotional transition for the parent thinking, how come my child is different? Same thing happens when they turn into teenagers, 10, 11, 12. Um, you know, so we, we go through many different transitions. Uh, I would think that to prepare a child for adult life, you don't wait until the child is very old. If you can start at 11, 12, 13, it's ideal. And I'll tell you why. Many of our children learn a little bit slower than other kids. Yes. And if you start nice and slow teaching them what they like, now how are you going to know what they like? That's the major question we all wonder. What we did with Kenny when he was 11 years old, 11 years old we did a personal center planning. It's called PCP. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And through the PCP, what we discover is what does the child like? How does he like it? Where does he like it? Um, how or when does he learn better? And as a summary of one entire process of PCP, we realized that Kenny is not a student that likes to learn sitting because he has a lot of energy and he needs to be in motion. Uh, he loves playing with water. Anything that has a scent, a smell, he absolutely goes for it. He touches everything, so touch for him is very, very, and he loves to be outdoors. Now, if you put all that together into a classroom environment, pretty much, <laughs> you know, you cannot educate a child like Kenny. So they had to adapt a little bit the curriculum to yeah. do many of the activities that would be taking part during orientation and mobility, things where Kenny would be active. Transferring that into the time of transition into adult life, when Kenny was about 15, 16, we started thinking, okay, if we think about the future, what's going to happen to Kenny when he turns 21? Knowing what we knew, we, everybody said, you know, what about if he works in a farm? So the idea of the farm was created uh -huh. because Kenny likes to walk outdoors, he loves to touch animals, he enjoys the environment that has different smells and where he can touch different things. That took a team, didn't, <laughs> you know, because uh, you, know, you said every, everyone had this idea that he loved being outside. So without that person-centered planning, uh, I mean, it, it might have been a tougher journey, do you think? I, I To be honest, um, I think everybody should have a person-centered planning. Not only children who are deafblind, but... <laughs> Everybody, how many kids you know that go to college and they go into a career that when they finish the career they realize they don't like it? Right. <laughs> uh, if they would have done a PCP before, I'm sure that. 
no, the, the person-centered planning for children who are deafblind is uh, something that has to be done at that early age because even to adapt the IEP, mm-hmm. and it's much easier to learn when you like how they are teaching it to you or if you're learning something that you want to do yeah. Yeah. than to learn something you don't. I like how you brought up um, doing transition, like the transition is day to day and that it should always be thought, you know, there should always be the thought of what that, what that transli- transition looks like for a deaf, uh, for an individual with deaf blindness mm-hmm. and, and I think we think like transitioning out of school, you know, so, sometimes yeah. the thought is the legal requirement of the transition out of school, but whenever you say like, uh, as you begin to prepare, like things begin, it, it might t- take them a little more time. So you have to introduce those skills a little bit earlier. So there's, I, I think with that comes a lot of picking and, and choosing of what's a necessity. Uh, uh, I, w- I would think that on the transition of children who are deafblind, if a child is going to be um, oriented toward going to college, even so, um, the idea is that the child is going to continue his education. There is a lot of supports that need to be in place prior to that student going mm-hmm. into higher education, and that cannot be done overnight. There is a lot of agencies you need to contact, and again, it could take a year, could take two sometimes yeah. to, yeah. to make the arrangements. So, the, the idea of starting early always work. Who Kids who are a little bit more complex and might need a little extra support, mm-hmm. therefore the amount of years you need preparing for that is going to be also much larger. Um, with Kenny, we not only had to have a place where he was going to work, we needed to have the supports of the people that were going to be with him. The agencies that we needed to work with, making sure that Commission for the Blind was going to provide orientation and mobility, uh, that um, all the part of medical insurances, doctors and therapies were going to be taken care. Uh, there, there are so many different pieces in the puzzle. Mm-hmm. They need to be arranged way, way, way ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you believe helps an individual with that blindness be successful? I always say that behind an individual who is deafblind being successful, there is a parent who is very persistent and who has worked together in partnership with many professionals to make it happen because a parent cannot do it by itself mm-hmm. and it takes a team a very well organized to support an individual who is that blind. Nice. Clara, I know after this a lot of people may want to contact you. How, how can they go about contacting you? And The easiest way is via email because I check my email. <laughs> Uh, so email is nfadb.clara, C-L-A-R-A, at gmail.com. Oh, 
Thank you, Clara, for being here and giving your knowledge to the parents of the lessons learned. Thank you. And I would say to everybody listening to stay tuned because in 2018 we will have another symposium. Yay! (laughs) 